Hello and welcome to The Sound Architect. I am here with Michael Pickton. Thank you very much for joining us. Michael, how are you? I'm doing great. How's it going, Sam? Good, good stuff. And we're going to be talking about Michael's composition career and Marvel Universe Live as well, amongst some other projects. So, Michael, how did your career in composition begin? Um, well, the very beginnings were probably similar to most uh, as a kid, you know, um, being obsessed with uh, with uh, the soundtracks of uh, Star Wars and most of the, the John Williams canon uh as a as a youngster, yeah. and then um, um, also simultaneously becoming uh, sort of uh, uh, obsessed and enamored with uh, with synthesizers and their possibilities. I'm kind of a child of, of the '80s compositionally, uh, so um, my my first uh, my first essays in composition started both at the piano and at the at the old DX7. Um, so I've always been kind of drawn both to the orchestral side of things and very much the electronic side of things since I was young. Um, and then from there, I went on to, uh, to sort of a regular course of, uh, of classic music composition at McGill University, um, learning most of my technique and the basics there, although there wasn't much of a, a film program there, so that was very much self-taught. And then after university, just sort of trying it every which way to um, – to get into the uh, into the industry at the time, I was in Montreal, so it was uh, there was a bit of a bit of an industry in the nineties uh, in Montreal, but it's nothing like um, like uh, Los Angeles or or London for that matter. Right. Uh, but uh, but because of that, I managed to uh, end up getting hooked up with some composers who were working both in film in Montreal, but also in um, in the circus world, and I ended up assisting. Uh, the composer Benoit Jutra, who writes for, uh, who wrote many of the the greatest Cirque Soleil shows, wow. and uh, working by his side on some of his productions, and that sort of led me into a very unexpected uh, circus career path, which, in a roundabout way, ended up uh, with me working for Marvel. Wow, it's quite a, a unique turn of events, I guess. <laughs> it was sort of it's sort of a zigzag path to uh, to wherever I'm still zigging and zagging to. Yeah, I mean, you kind of expect film and TV and promos and things, and then you suddenly see circus, theatre, and live kind of uh, creeping in there as well. It's funny because it, uh, it it was very much a product of, on one hand, me being in a particular place at a particular time in Montreal in the late 90s, early 2000s, where um, uh, Montre Montreal was the headquarters of, of Cirque du Soleil. So there was sort of a little bit of an industry around Cirque du Soleil born around there and especially around the music of it. And, um, but then my further circus career happened later on, uh, in the States after I had moved to New York and then later to Los Angeles connecting with the Ringling brothers, um, through entirely different channels, but also, but still having that, uh, background with Cirque du Soleil having worked on it with Benoit. So I kind of knew a little bit of the territory, even though Ringling brothers is, is an entirely different aesthetic and feel and size and scope of, of show than the, the, the Cirque ones were. And then the Ringling brothers led directly to Marvel because Feld Entertainment produces the Ringling brothers and they're the ones who, uh, who produced the, this giant um, Marvel universe live show. And so we've had a long uh, relationship over the last, I guess six, seven, maybe seven or eight years I've been working with on them on Ringling Brothers shows and now on Marvel Universe Live. Wow. And just before we talk about Marvel Universe Live, you, you, you've composed for almost every genre 
of media now. <laughs> do, you, do you have a particular favorite to compose for of all of them? No, I don't. Each one really has their own their own sort of uh, challenges and um, things to love about them. You know, whether uh, I, I love stuff like the the Marvel Universe Live is sort of a great combination of things for me because Marvel Universe Live combines the stuff I loved about doing um, sci-fi scores. I did uh, Flash Gordon for for uh, on, for Sci-Fi Channel for for a year, and it's sort of that kind of big um, sci-fi adventure score. But with Marvel Universe Live, it sort of marries with the big live show circus kind of stuff I was doing. So it's sort of a combination of it's what I love about Marvel. The Marvel show is that it's kind of a natural, logical endpoint to all the different paths I've been traveling simultaneously. Yeah. Um, so with the with the TV kind of stuff, with Flash Gordon leads directly into it, and then the circus kind of stuff leads into it. Um, and then the the other things I've worked on have been um, uh, a lot of sort of network branding, network logos for for things like PBS, CNN, uh, and Amazon, which is a totally different. Um, aesthetic and ball game and it's all about sort of condensing an identity into five seconds where sort of something like Marvel Universe is sort of stretching a character into hours of action. Yeah, it must be quite difficult to to constantly change your writing style, but I suppose that's what is expected from a composer. Uh, yeah, it, um, it's, uh, sometimes there's a bit of whiplash involved, definitely. Um, <laughs> I'm moving now from having done Marvel Universe Live into doing uh, a kids show for Nickelodeon called Mutton Stuff, which is about um, uh, puppies and, and puppets. Yeah, that must have been and, such a dramatic change. Yeah, I'm going from, from, um, <laughs> I'm going from uh, monstrous um, uh, orchestral rock cues to... Um, sort of indie rock glockenspiel marimba land uh <laughs> but it's but it's great because it's it's you know i i, I the, the one thing i don't get with my work is uh sometimes i get stressed and sometimes i get busy but i definitely never get bored yeah i bet yeah <laughs> so how did you first get involved in marvel universe live did you say just from working with Feld entertainment before yeah, it was working with Feld Entertainment. I had done four shows with them, so um, so they had uh, they had some trust in me as as a composer. And I worked with the director uh, Shonda, who Shonda Sawyer, who did uh, Marvel Universe Live. She also did the show Dragons, which was uh, a really great edition of the Ringling Brothers Circus. Um, that I worked on with her. So we had a, a, a working relationship. And so Feld Entertainment knew that, that we could work well together. And, um, and I was an, I was an unknown quantity to Marvel, but I think it was on the, on the strength of, um, of my past relationship with Feld and then throwing in the, some of the music I had done for Flash Gordon into the mix, I think helped uh, sort of seal the deal that I could actually handle the, the, the sort of superhero sci-fi. Uh, yeah. So was Flash Gordon kind of like a good, like you say, a good warming up to the epicness of, a, of Marvel? Yeah, I'm not sure. It didn't feel like a warm up when no, I was. I doing bet, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yes, absolutely. Flash Gordon was a was a lot of fun. It was one of those things where you kind of just it was, Flash Gordon was a real project of jumping into the deep end because it 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 was 
you know, now most most TV shows start out with, you know, 13-episode orders in England, six-episode orders, that kind of thing. Yeah. With Flash, we had 22 episodes right off the bat. Wow. So was, um, we were getting into a marathon right at the beginning, and it was sort of adventure, so it was a lot of music every episode, very, you know, sort of um, active and involved music every episode. But it's exactly the kind of music I wanted to be writing, so it was... It was it was a joy and a marathon at the same time. Yeah, so it was quite intense but rewarding at the same yeah, time. Yeah. What's it like to compose for a live project as opposed to video? How, how does your process kind of differ? It differs that I, to a certain extent in the live shows, when I'm starting the project especially, I need to uh, write to my imagination more than to um, a concrete picture. Usually at least with a... With a, a TV show or a film, you're getting a, at least a rough cut and more often um, something close to a final cut uh, when you're starting to write. So you're actually writing directly to picture. You know from the first note if it's really working, you're kind of digging right into it. With the Marvel show, I, we start, I started working from the script. The one thing we had before I started writing music was the script, but because everything was going to... Uh, be on stage it uh, it was still in development they were still while I was music writing music they were still researching you know what kind of motorcycle stunts were going to happen in the show they were still researching exactly how the acrobatics were going to work so we were sort of creating between the script and the music sort of creating uh, a, a t- we were kind of creating the equivalent of the of the film edit without the actors kind of out where all the action was going to be in our imagination and then hoping the real people would would fill it in and then once we get onto stage in the last month or so before the show opens once we get on stage with all the actors and the acrobats and everything um then it becomes a back and forth where i start to receive video from the staging area and adapt my score to what i'm actually seeing on stage and then and they're adapting their action on stage to what they're hearing in the soundtrack and in the dialogue and the soundtrack music soundtrack of the uh, of the sound yeah so did you go and watch quite a bit to kind of have your kind of input there or to see it or do you just get videos it's mostly videos because um so that i could be sort of safely ensconced in my studio churning out music uh rather than running back and forth to uh to the rehearsal hall and in uh, Florida once in the last couple of weeks, once most of the music was in place and recorded, uh, then I moved over to the, um, we, we did the final rehearsals for the show at the arena in Florida where it premiered. And so for the last couple of weeks, I set up in a, in a back room in that arena. So I could actually be watching rehearsal and going straight to the back room to edit music or add little cues here and there where we needed it. Wow, so you're still sort of writing on the fly even towards towards performance day. Oh yeah, right, even right up till um I think even right up till a few days before I think I think we we added I think we even added a little transitional scene even a a couple of days before the premiere. Wow. Yeah. It's quite intense still as well. You know, you don't like to take it easy, do you? <laughs> No, but I mean, people in the, in, in the film world, you end up doing the same thing, but you end up doing it when you're at the, uh, at the recording date. You know, I know stories of plenty of plenty of big film composers on big films, you know, rewriting 
rewriting cues on the scoring stage in front of the orchestra while they're waiting for the cue. You know, that that's not un, 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 unheard of. Yeah, it's kind of expected in the industry, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's you know, if you, something needs to be changed, you want to do it now. There's there's no there's no do it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How much yeah. music did you end up actually writing for Marvel Universe Live overall? Well, Marvel was it's a it's a hundred minute show and it's wall to wall, so a hundred minutes. Um, there was not a lot of music. There were a few cues that were sort of abandoned and restarted at various points, but not a lot for a project of that size. So I have to say I was pretty lucky in terms of um, most. There, there was very, there were very little, very few cues left on the cutting room floor in, in that show. Mm. So it was really a hundred minutes of music, um, top to bottom. Was it quite daunting to, to write for something quite iconic as Marvel? Absolutely. Um, you know, you're really thinking of at this point when I started that show, there were um, probably there were probably at least ten Marvel movies by that point. Yeah, there's quite a few. Uh, and uh, and most of those are, are giant hit movies too, so they're very much in the public's ear and in the public's eye, and sort of define a sound and a quality for for the Marvel uh, for the Marvel brand and for the actual characters themselves. So yeah, you're really up against sort of the best the best of the best. But by the same by the same token, you're given the opportunity to write sort of. Uh, the biggest, most unrestrained music you can. It's sort of demanded of you. So in that in that sense, it's uh, you, you get to sort of take the gloves off and, and and be happy you did it. Yeah, just go for it. I mean, did you see yeah. the Marvel films? Were you inspired by any, or even the opposite? Did they kind of? Did you try and stay away from the iconic sounds of the film at all? Um, I watched. I'd seen most of them by the time I started Marvel. Uh, the there's only a couple I need to catch up on right now, which are uh, um, Captain America: The Winter Soldier. I haven't gotten to yet, and Ultron, which hopefully I'll see in the next week. There was there was sort of um, a desire, I think, to to cleave to sort of what the Marvel sound is becoming, sort of. Um, to try and take my inspiration from some of the more recent Marvel films like Thor 2 and Iron Man 3 and The yeah. Avengers um, rather than go back to say what what uh, the scores of uh, the first Spider-Man movie or the old uh, the older uh, Fantastic Four movie that kind of thing it was um, as taking my cues more from the more recent movies, but at the, by the same, at the same time, they were also asking me to push the show a little more in the sort of rock and hard techno and less orchestral direction, uh, than you might expect from, from the movies, which do tend to be quite, quite orchestral in general. So the, the show itself pushes a little more into sometimes straight up rock and, and, uh, and techno genres, uh, and uh, and that was a fun challenge too, because then you're really not just cleaving to what you're hearing in the movies, but trying to invent a new sound for the for the live experience show too. I hope it came out well. Yeah, I mean it's only in the US at the moment. Do you know if it has any plans to come to the UK? Uh, yeah, it, it. I don't know the the particular dates. I'm not sure if they've been. I don't think they've been announced yet. But it. Uh, if you go to the website, it does 
say stay tuned for UK dates. So I'm not sure when they are, but they're definitely coming. Oh, fantastic. Well, we're definitely looking forward to checking that out. It's hitting Canada this summer. So that's the first time I've done a, a Feld show that has actually gone outside of the U.S. So it, it does is doing Canada this summer. And then, uh, yeah, it'll definitely get to the U.K. And I think they have, they have other countries planned too, but they just haven't announced them. It was very interesting. So... Are you a Marvel fan yourself? I think I'm a Marvel fan mostly of the movies. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, I'm not a, I haven't been a comic book reader since, there was, there was a period when I was back into comic books, maybe about 20 years ago, but I haven't, <laughs> honestly, I haven't been that much into them since. Um, but more and more recently, I've been eating up the movies. I, I really kind of got back into them with, uh, with the first Thor movie, actually, which is not everybody's favorite, but it really, um, struck a chord with me because it was so much, uh, it was so much fun. It sort of had all the, all the adventure elements, but also sort of a, a tongue in cheek humor about it that I, that I, that I found, uh, amusing. And, um, and so that led into Thor two and I finally got back into, uh, the Avengers and, uh, and the Iron Man catching up with the Iron Man movies, which, which have gotten more and more interesting, I think. Especially Iron Man 3 was fun. Yeah, it was definitely a good uh, fun action fest, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. This this mutton stuff that you're working on for, for Nick Jr., so completely other end of the scale, really. How how did you begin work on it? Did you just suddenly go, right, okay, forget all the, the epic techno and, <laughs> and just kind of sit down and go, right, what is this? Uh, we began work on it um, sort of trying to, trying to work on... Um, uh, theme songs um, when they were sort of we did a, a pilot episode which became a, a, less of a pilot more of a special uh, which was on Nick in in March and it was sort of a tryout of the show um, and it was funny because I wrote uh, a theme song for it but they had a few pe- other people writing theme songs and I hadn't, uh, they didn't end up using my theme song, but they nevertheless gave me the, the job of scoring the show. Right. So, it was sort of, so it was, it was kind of a, a lose win in that respect, but it, uh, it worked out just great. Cause now I'm, now I'm working on the whole series and, uh, I had worked with the, uh, executive producer Bradley on it, uh, he had written some of the Ringling Brothers shows that I had worked on, so he brought me in to the show and introduced me to Marty Marty Croft, um, who's uh, who's the force behind behind this, and was responsible for all these fantastic other um, kids shows all through the decades, like HR um, um, Puff and stuff, and Sigmund and the Sea Monster, Land of the Lost. So Bradley brought me into the show, and uh, and we just sort of hunted around to find the right. Uh, tone for it, which ended up being sort of a little bit uh, rock and roll that kind of matched the theme song that they chose for the show, and then kind of a, a little bit Looney Tunes with sort of funny accents and and um, and, uh, and and quirky moments and stuff to highlight uh, what you're seeing, which is mostly uh, dogs acting on screen, which is pretty hilarious. It's actual dogs. It's actual dogs doing actual tricks, uh, and the um, the lead character in it is um, Calvin Milan, who's the son of Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. And Caesar is is one of the producers on the show. And Caesar um, um, makes cameo appearances in the show as well. So there's it's a good deal of the show is about. Um, is in a certain respect, it's about 
dog dog training for kids uh, in a little bit. And then there are also then there are the Sid and Marty Croft touches, like the giant the guy in the giant dog suit, who's the the stuffed character, who's a giant yellow dog, and the cats who are puppets, and there's a there's a talking fire hydrant. It's all very whimsical. <laughs> Definitely does sound quite quite crazy and fun to work on then. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 bizarre, you know, in the best <laughs> in the best way. <laughs> so can you tell us what else is coming up or is it all a bit kind of hush hush at the moment? Or is there any other kind of new stuff coming your way? Well the the, the other thing that's going on is is this um, circus show I've written called Pedal Punk, which is on yeah. tour with this company called Cirque Mechanics. And in the fall we're gonna do a I'm gonna revise Revise a little bit of that show, sort of refurbish it a little as they go into their fall and winter tour, which uh, is moving towards. Uh, I think we have a, a nice three or four week stay in uh, uh, performances in New York uh, around December. I'm pretty sure. So I'm going to brush up that show a little bit for for those. But it's it's already on tour right now, and we're hitting the hitting the Chicago Circus Festival in June, which should be fun. And it's sort of a, a steampunk with bicycles. Circus, which is um, yeah, so that's that's sort of ongoing, and then um, we're uh, uh, um, then I, th- I think that's, I think that's the that's the only thing that's sort of publicly announced <laughs> that's that's going on in the fall. But uh, I'll let you know when uh, when other things come to fruition for sure. Yeah, definitely keep us posted. And I, I saw some clips of Cirque Mechanics. It definitely looks very cool. Is there any particular reason you want to revise the score, or just because you can? Every score I do, I always feel I've left it unfinished in some way. You know, nothing's ever right. perfect. So when I get an opportunity to actually go back to something and maybe make some tweaks and uh, nip and tuck a little bit, I do that. Also, having seen having with a live show, you don't really know the show until it's lived out on the road in front of a live audience. So when I wrote it, it, it nobody had ever seen it. And so in the case of this show, I think now that I've seen it a few times. Uh, I have a sense of a few moments in the show where I'd like to stretch the music or some few little details of the instrumentation and the mix that I'd like to perfect when we send it out on the road again. It's the difference a little bit, too, in these shows with um, Certain Mechanics is a show that runs entirely on recorded tracks. Um, Marvel Universe Live does, too, whereas something like the Ringling Brothers uh, or Cirque du Soleil use live bands. Those those live bands are essential because they they can they can do those changes week in week out if the if the director you know wants a little bit stretched or a little bit early or in the case of circus it's very common that you know you'll even drop an act one week because of an injury or something uh, and have to rearrange the show and the thing is a live band especially in, in the case of a big circus like that is sometimes making those adjustments second by second like they're going to adjust if somebody misses their trapeze flip they'll either go back and do it again or move on to the next trick you know they'll adjust landing the big musical moment um uh with a series of vamps and cues to the to so that so that the music arrives at the same time as the amazing quadruple flip does that kind of thing yeah you need to be so fluid i guess especially with a lot of human uh timing and interaction yeah, and in the case of Ringling Brothers, um, animal timing and interaction too. Which is, oh yeah, obviously yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's funny because depending on the animal, sometimes it's more uh, more predictable or less predictable than humans. Uh, some of the animals are really consistent. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, we do a little bit of the same in Marvel and in Cirque Mechanics in that we there are certain spots in both of those shows where we have cue points, where the sound operator has a special musical moment and they can wait for a cue to move on. But it's it's very limited to just certain spots in the show in those, whereas in a in a show with a band, you have those moments all over the place. Yeah, I mean, you've just composed for so many different variations and your process must differ between all of them. But would you say there's some core part of your process that you, you always use? Is there kind of so many steps that you always follow or does it literally change per project and you have to completely change how you work? Uh, no, everything sort of, to a certain extent, everything comes down to the same fundamental questions of what's the important point of what you're seeing and how do you highlight that in music? How do you, A, create the emotion and, or the atmosphere that that the story or the visual requires of you? And then B, how do you draw the audience's attention to the important emotional or visual or action point that they need their attention drawn to? And it kind of works for for everything, whether it's like accenting a giant flip in a circus or yeah. or emotionally hitting the right glance in a drama or even or or just um accenting the way a letter turns around in a in a in a logo or something uh it's sort of just identifying uh what you need your attention drawn to and what the emotional direction of that attention needs to be. So it kind of ends up, it it feels different in everything, but it kind of ends up boiling down, I think, to the same things about sort of discovering the intent behind it and how to draw the, uh, draw the audience into that intent. Right. So what's your first step once you've decided what that is? Well, the first, the, the first step, the first step is just deciding, yeah, what that is. The second step, I guess, is deciding how do I express that in music? Because that, and that's usually the, the the most involved one is like, how do I say this in a musical style that fits what I should be looking at and also what I should be feeling? Um, or does or does this show? require the music to lead me down an emotional path or should the music stand back and let the audience into the emotion themselves it really depends on the style of the show so that's usually the the crucial point is sort of what needs to be what needs to be said but number the usually the the trickiest part is sort of how to say it and that that's where you sort of have to start asking questions about well what what is the style of this show? What is an appropriate way of saying this for the show that fits all of the other elements, the costumes, the the actors, the lighting, um, so that it all ends up being a unified whole? So it's sort of it's sort of a, a, a crossover of figuring out. I guess it's kind of figuring out how your style is meeting your substance. It's sort of figuring out what yeah. it is you need to say and how you want to say it is sort of crucial to how music defines the style of what of, of what the show is you're working on. And that and that can um that can that that's that's sometimes the trickiest because people's notions of style uh can be very, very personal. So that's where where it where communication with the producers and the directors and the people involved in the show becomes all important so that you guys all feel that you're moving towards the same 
the same end goal with the music. You're trying to accomplish the same thing. They, you know, you don't have the a director trying to accomplish uh, a subtle and slightly distance effect while the composer is trying to, you know, show off their romantic chops. Yeah, I think that's always the trickiest part is that, you know, you're all trying to achieve that one vision and the communication side between composers, producers and directors is all very vital yeah. to, to achieve that. And it, it must be quite nerve wracking as well because it's your interpretation of someone else's kind of vision in the first place. And you want to make sure that you're all on par with each other. That's right. Um, yeah, because you have to understand you're you're <laughs> you can be. You can be um, slathering your 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 musical vision over somebody else's um, uh, over somebody else's you know years slaved over um, uh, story concept and and very personal emotion you know um, so yeah. it's, it's you always have to be I think uh, I mean it's not always so personal sometimes you're adding your vision to you know something that's you know that's been decided by a, a team of a hundred people but also very carefully moment by moment like in the case of Marvel there's a lot of voices in that room but everybody has a very considered opinion and a reason that they have their opinion for that so even, even though it's not sort of the same kind of personal vision as you would have with, say, uh, uh, a, a small independent film that's really driven by mm. an auteur. It's still um, a vision of a lot of people who have worked very hard and are trying to direct all of their forces to one. And in the in the case of the Marvel shows, you know, these are huge, huge enterprises, both in terms of the movies and the and the the live show too. Um, it's it's directing a whole lot of visions towards the, a single end goal, and that becomes challenging for everybody, and especially for the for the producers and the directors who have to sort of bring all of those visions together. Um, I don't envy them that task because in the end, yeah, yeah, they have to rein it all in. And- yeah, at the end of the day, I just kind of have to uh, get mine aligned with theirs. But if yeah. you think about the director of one of these movies or or Shonda, the director of one of these shows, they have to get hundreds of voices aligned all in the same direction and that's a and that's a real challenge but when you get it when you get it right it creates something really spectacular fantastic yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna a little bit get a little bit techie now and uh, okay. kind of ask you what uh, if you can tell us a little bit about your setup and whether you have any go-to software well i do all my writing in logic pro um okay and um i use almost exclusively um, sample libraries and contact for everything. Um, cool. And I pretty much have one of it. I, when it comes to like orchestral stuff, kind of one of everything. I use also outside of contract, I use um, Omnisphere all the time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a grab bag of, of everything. I've tried sort of, every orchestral library and end up taking, you know, bits and pieces from each one when I'm in a project that just suit, suit it in the, in the best way in the Marvel. When the Marvel, we had, had some, some live, had a lot of live stuff too, but in the demo stages, I would use all kinds of libraries from the, um, the Hollywood brass probably ended up being most of the brass, although I would always turn to Cinebrass for their monster or low brass patches, which, which are, are everywhere in that score and um, <laughs> and uh, percussion, you know, tons of the sound iron and eight do percussion stuff. Um, uh, lots of atmosphere for sort of ambiences and synths. Um, but also, I started 
in Marvel using a lot of um, a fair amount of uh, massive as well from Contact. Oh, okay. Yeah, because well, we, we I, I went a little kind of dubstepy and sound palette in a couple of scenes in that show, oh, so cool. I ended up using sort of some some massive oriented stuff there, uh, and also in that in those sections I used um, uh, the BT uh, Beat Tweaker. Uh, right. which is uh, which is a very cool plugin. It's kind of a very specific plugin, but if you're doing that sort of micro editing drum stuff, uh, yeah. it's 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 really the only thing. And it and it's and it, and in the way the way you can manipulate time and turn time into uh, uh, turn rhythm into into pitch and stuff with that is is fascinating. I, I want to delve more into it, but it's not. The kind of thing that's too applicable to something like um, uh, mutton stuff, for example. <laughs> and then I use, and then producing the sound, I used uh, just about everything. You know, waves, t- waves plugins in UAD for most of the um, processing, um, compressing, yeah. and all that kind of thing. And um, but I was also sound toys. Uh, I've recently got into a lot, both for mangling sound and the sound of their delays is just fantastic. Yeah, some cool stuff from Sound Toys. Yeah. To finish off, then, my final question is going to be, what would your top three tips be for composers who are listening out there? Top three would be, um, well, we discussed this earlier, but uh, I think learning to, and I've said this before, to learning to... Learning, learning to speak the language of directors and producers, or just learning to talk about music with non-musicians and talk about music that's outside of your um, maybe educational expertise yeah. uh, with non-musicians. So understand what it is about the music that they love or the music they're bringing to the table that appeals to them, and why, and and what aspects of of that you can you can you can take out of it to, to to for you to bring to the project. Sort of understanding how to speak about music without speaking musical ease, you know, <laughs> with the actual language of music. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing, definitely, be a master of of um, of your craft and your technique, um, both for your own sake, just because you, you're always going to. I mean. Even when I'm writing the most rock and roll or whatever, there's not a day that goes by that I don't use the lessons I learned in counterpoint class in yeah. um, in in college. You know, the ability to write lines against each other and in, make things work together. Um, even even going right back to you know proper proper voice leading and four part harmony, it may not be directly applicable, but all the concepts and the ear that gets trained when you learn that stuff is in use every day. So I, I, I couldn't stress it enough just to sort of learn your craft whenever you have an opportunity, but also the technical end of your craft, because if you're just starting out and wanting to learn, the best way to do it is to work for another composer. And uh, usually what a composer needs is somebody who has mastered uh, the technical instruments. Usually a composer yeah. needs somebody who can do everything on their um, on their sequencer of choice, you know, who knows all their keyboards, who knows how the whole thing works, so that the composer can think about the notes and leave the um, technology to their assistant. So one of the best ways to get in with a composer is to be really masterful with all of the um, all of the instruments that composer works with on a day to day basis. Um, so it's it's funny, kind of getting into learning learning uh, with a composer involves sort of 
having a technical mastery is more useful at the beginning stages to working with somebody than having necessarily sort of the imaginative and creative musical mastery because usually they're plenty happy to to provide that themselves but then you'll you'll only you'll never get it <laughs> then the other the flip side of that is you you won't get far without the uh, without the creative bit once you go out on your own so Oh yeah, obviously it's quite a vital part, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, just to sum it, I just say you know, be, you know, be be a, whatever tools you're using, make sure you know how to use them and master them as best you can. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Michael. It's been awesome to have you on the show. Uh, thanks very much. I appreciate it. It's great talking to you, Sam. Yeah, and we look forward to Marvel Universe Live coming to the UK and anyone out there in the US. Hope you're checking it out now.